The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Amen. Praise the Lord. That was powerful. Um, There's about 10 of us in the sanctuary right now, and every one of us was just worshiping Jesus with all of our hearts. Thank you, worship team. You guys absolutely killed it. Um, And I know you're echoing that in your homes, giving a shout out. And by the way, I wanted to begin actually this evening by giving a shout out to um, some very special people that I know who have been joining with us. Um, because in my family, it's, it's the kids, it's my wife and I, it's everybody gathering around the screen. And I know many other families out there that are doing the same thing. And so we've got a lot of little people on the other side of this screen that I just wanna give a virtual high five to. Moms and dads, those of you who are watching, just turn to your kids and say, you rock. Give them a high five. Benjamin, Quinn, Andrew, and Hattie, I love you guys. And pay attention to this sermon. I'm going to quiz you on it. Um, So we're joined not only by little kids everywhere that we want to bless and encourage, but also we did a Facebook online thing earlier today. And we had people joining in from literally every part of the globe. It was so encouraging to see and so life-giving to know that you can't chain or box in the gospel. And God is using the internet. He's using these services to go out from this place all over the world and not just here at Maranatha Chapel, but he's doing that through churches all over the world. And lives are being touched. Broken hearts are being mended. Marriages are being restored and dead souls are coming to life in the name of Jesus because of the life-giving power of the gospel. And so we celebrate that fact tonight. Praise the Lord. With that, let's go ahead and and open our Bibles. Um, Pastor Sean last week began a brand new series that we're calling Heart Cries. And in this series, we're looking through the Psalms, which do such a good job of tapping into the emotional component of the human, human soul and the human equation. And many of them, of course, were written by David and several others. And they just have a way of bypassing our minds and our heads. And they just go right into our souls and they touch us right in those emotional parts of our soul. And, and so that's why we wanted to take some time to see what God's word might want to say to us through the Psalms. And, and tonight we're going to be in Psalm 42. And the title of my sermon is Sustaining Hope in Hard Times. And I promise you that by the time we get to the end of this, this will be one of the more encouraging and hope-filled sermons you've ever heard in your life. But I want to start it with a question that's perhaps not so uh, hope-infusing. I want you to start tonight by asking yourself, what is the saddest word you can think of in the English language? That's the question that was posed to a group of several famous people a while ago. They were asked to come back with what they thought was the saddest word. And and one guy said it was the word goodbye. Pretty sad saying goodbye. Another guy who responded pointed to the phrase, it might have been. He thought that was the saddest thing. And then another respondent replied with the word forlorn which I guess means this quiz was given a long time ago because nobody really uses the word forlorn anymore. For what it's worth, if you were to ask me what I thought the saddest word in the English language was, I would point you to the word hopeless. I mean, after all, when a situation is hopeless, 
by definition, it is beyond help. Dante, in his divine comedy, imagined a sign above the gates of hell that read, abandon hope, ye that enter here. Hell is quite literally a place where hope ceases to be a thing. And the truth is, we all need hope. To hope is to be human. Hope is the light at the end of the tunnel. Hope is to our spirits what oxygen is to our lungs. Hope is what carries us through. It's what gets us through the hard times. It's what allows us to endure hardship and trial and heartache. Emily Dickinson once wrote that hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without words that never stops at all. That's beautiful, right? I have no idea what she was talking about, but it sounds good, so that's why I threw that in there for you guys. But the point is, we all get that hope is essential. It's critical. It's crucial. And that's why the enemy is constantly coming against our hope. He's trying to tear it down because he knows that if he can get us to give up hope, then he's got us. And that's why one of the most important things that we can learn to do as believers is that we need to learn how to cultivate and grow and nourish hope in our souls. But is that even possible? Is hope something that you can nourish and cultivate and grow? Is it like a flower garden or is it like a vegetable garden? Or, or is that something that lies outside of our control? That's the question that I want to think through with you all this evening. And as we do that, let's, let's look now at the heading of Psalm 42, because there's a lot of information there contained in just a few words. And the heading says that this psalm was written for the director of music, a mascal, not a rascal, a mascal of the sons of Korah. So a couple of pieces of information there. We're told that this is a mascal and and, and part of what that means is it's either a musical notation or it was meant to be an instructive song. So this was a teaching tool for ancient Israel. So what was the lesson that was being passed on in the psalm? I believe that the psalmist is teaching us how to build and sustain hope in the midst of hard times. What's more, we're told that this was for the director of music, so it's a song. And you know as well as I do that one of the most powerful forms of teaching or communicating truth is, is through song, right? Just think back to the way that you learned your ABCs. It was in a song, wasn't it? And that's because good teachers know that when you want to drive home a truth, if you put it to a little bit of melody, then it sticks a whole lot better. And music is powerful in that way. But the other piece of information we're given there in the heading of the psalm is that it was of the sons of Korah. Now, those of you who are familiar with your Bibles, that name Korah, it might ring some bells for you. Korah was a family name with a dark cloud hovering over its past. And you can read about the story of Korah and his rebellion that he led there in the book of Numbers. I believe it's chapter 16. And, and Korah, he, he rebelled against Moses' leadership in the exodus of the Israelites as Moses was leading them through the wilderness. And, and Korah came against Moses and he said, who says, who made you the ruler over all of us? And he developed a following of about 250 people who were like, yeah. 
And they went after Moses and attacked his leadership and his right to, to lead the people of God. For his part, Moses didn't defend himself. He just said, let's, let's let God decide this matter, which God did do by opening the earth and swallowing not only Korah, but all of his tent and all 250 followers that he had managed to, to gather around him. They all were just swallowed up by the earth. Oh my goodness. Nevertheless, this is such a powerful verse. Numbers 26 verse 11 tells us, the line of Korah didn't die out, not completely. Evidently, there were some of Korah's kids that were there who chose not to follow him in his rebellion. They stayed loyal to Moses and when they were warned to do so, they fled from Korah and thus weren't swallowed up by the earth. And in the years that followed, these descendants of Korah who were spared God's wrath by an act of his grace, they, they developed an aptitude for praise and worship Jesus, after all, talked about those who have been forgiven much, love much, and, and these guys had firsthand knowledge of what they had been spared from. And, and so they became anointed and passionate worship leaders. And by the, the time of the reign of King David, he appointed the sons of Korah to become the national worship leaders. And I find that beautiful on a number of levels. For one thing, it reminds us that our past doesn't have to define our future. And beyond that, it instills in us this notion that if we'll surrender our hearts and our lives to Jesus, it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter what we've done in our past, God will redeem us and he will use us for his own glory. So that's who put the musical score together for this song. But I'm not entirely convinced that the sons of Korah were the ones who wrote the actual song. So who was it? Well, there's a lot of evidence in Psalm 42 that not only in my opinion, but in the opinion of many scholars points to King David. And many scholars agree that there are several lines in this particular Psalm that point to a, a specific season in David's life. And that season occurred when his son, Absalom, came against him and he had put together this army. And so Absalom builds this army in an attempt to usurp his father's throne. And, and David is forced to make a decision. He can stay in Jerusalem and usher in this bloody battle that would cost the lives of many of his men fighting against his own flesh and blood, or he can flee. In the end, David decided to flee and abdicate his throne and surrender the kingdom for a time and leave Jerusalem. And so I want you to take that mindset. Think of David under those circumstances as he pens the words to these lyrics. Let's go ahead and read beginning in verse one. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with my God? My tears have been my food day and night. Well, people say to me all day long, where is your God? But these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. 
My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizor. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls and all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Just step inside David's sandals for a moment. Put yourself in his position. His throne has been stripped from him. His own son has come against him. His family is in tatters. His kingdom lies in jeopardy. To put it bluntly, he's lost everything he had fought to gain. Yet it's it's worth noting that the one thing that sticks out to him and the one thing that he points to that he missed more than anything during this season of exile and hardship, the thing that he points to is that he was separated from the temple and the worship of his Lord. Just look what he says in verse two. He says, when can I go and meet with my God? And then just a couple of verses later in verse four, he says, these are the things I'm, I'm remembering as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. This is the thing David aches for. This is what his heart longs for. It's the presence of the Lord. Just look at how he begins the psalm. He says, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, O God. By the way, this is what made David a man after God's own heart. More than anything in this world, with every fiber of his being, the one thing he cherished and desired above all else was to be present with the Lord, to be near to the Lord talks about the deer panting for water. It makes me think of how I feel after a hard workout or maybe after I've gone for a long run. You know how your body just craves water and when you get to a drinking fountain or when you get to your bottle of water, you're just guzzling that thing. Well, that's how intense David's desire and thirst was for the living God. But it it wasn't just for God. Notice too how he talks about, man, the thing I remember is going into the house of the Lord among the festive throng. I guess that's the old way of talking about David's desire for corporate worship. And can't you just resonate with that? Am I the only one who, I mean, I'm sitting here with, you know, a dozen or so of my, my 10 of my closest friends. And that's Sean's laugh right here in the front row, who I'm so blessed by. But I miss my church family so badly. And yes, I get it that church isn't a building. I get it that that church is a people. And yes, I'm thankful for technology, which allows us to still gather in a virtual sense. But man, I miss giving hugs to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I miss gathering with you guys, the festive throng, and worshiping corporately. And I can't wait until we can do that together again soon. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Let it be so. 
But all that to say, I get where David's coming from and I get the ache of his heart. And, and I'm sure that many of you out there feel the same way. But then compiling on that and making matters worse, we see that David's enemies are piling on and they're saying to him during this difficult season of his life, where's your God now? And the result of all of this is that it left David feeling depressed. That's really the only word to describe it. That's right, David, King David got depressed. Perhaps that surprises some of you to hear that a man like him might get depressed. After all, this is the same guy who took down Goliath with a sling and a stone. This is the same guy that penned the 23rd Psalm. Yet, yet what we see here is that sometimes even godly people struggle with depression. Now, my guess is that there are some people out there that would take issue with that statement. Some see no room or no place for gloominess or sadness in the life of the believer. And they would have you believe that if you're a believer in Jesus, then from that day forward, every day of your life should be filled with rainbows and butterflies and sunshine. Yet here we see, without question, one of the most godly men who has ever lived during a very dark period of his life. And, and, and you know, it's not just David that we find in such a state. As you read through the scriptures, you'll find everyone from Jeremiah to Jonah to Job to Elijah to people like Paul the apostle struggling with dark nights of the soul. Paul talked about how he despaired of life at one point. John the Baptist got discouraged. I mean, these are some heavy hitters. And the, the point I'm trying to drive home here is, is simply this. Depression is no respecter of persons. It affects young and old, rich and poor, ir irreligious and religious, all the same. And there are going to be times in many a Christian's life when they will pass through what St. John of the Cross once deemed the dark night of the soul. So the question, what should you do and how should you respond when those hard times hit? To put the question another way, how do you sustain hope in the midst of hardship? And that's where I think this particular Psalm becomes incredibly insightful. Look with me at what David does. We find a prescription for peace in the midst of hardship there in verse five, where he says, why, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And so here we find David preaching to his downcast soul. And this is what Sean did such a great job talking about in his sermon last week, the importance of not just listening to the thoughts that run through our heads, but maybe it's time we stop listening and start preaching to ourselves. And you'll notice with me that this refrain, that David says here in verse five, it's not something that he does once. In fact, if we had time, we could read Psalm 42 and 43. Many think those two go together. And three times in two chapters, David preaches to his own soul. And again, why does he do this? I'll tell you why. Because one of the best ways to drive important truths into the core of your being is to repeat them. Let me say that again. One of the best ways to drive core truths into the, the depths of your being is to repeat it. I could say it again. 
One of the, okay, you get the idea. We need to repeat things in order to learn them, in order to drive them down into the depths of our being. Just think of the way your teacher back in grade school used to run through multiplication tables with you over and over and over again. They did that because that's the best way to learn through song and through repetition. So we drive important truths deep down into the bedrock of our soul. And I can just picture David walking back and forth, talking to himself, just preaching to himself. He must have looked kind of, must have looked a little crazy, but he didn't care. He knew that he needed to get those truths deep down into his heart. And so what was the content of that message that David preached over and over and over again? It was quite simply this, put your hope in God. This is what he's telling himself. Soul, put your hope in God. 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 Now, as we dig into this topic of hope, I think we need to define what we mean when we talk about hope because there are some variations on on definitions for the word hope. And the way the Bible uses the word hope is very different, vastly different than the way that the world typically uses hope. So for example, usually when you hear someone talk about hope in a secular context, it's, it's essentially, I really want this to happen, or I wish that this would happen. But just because you want something to happen, or just because you're wishing for something to happen, doesn't mean that that thing is necessarily going to happen. And that's incredibly and vastly different than the way the Bible uses the word hope. You see, there are three different words for hope in translated hope in the Bible, two in the Old Testament and one in the New. And the first is yachal. Everybody at home say yachal. Think of y'all like Texas, but with a yachal. It means trust. And the other one is tokleth, which means guarantee. And then there's a New Testament word, which is translated hope. And it's the Greek word elpis, which means to expect with pleasure. So when you put those three things together, here's what you come away with. The biblical definition of the word hope is the confident expectation of coming good. It's not just wishing things to be so or wanting things to be so, it's confidently expecting good to come your way. Okay, so we've shown that there is a difference between worldly hope and biblical hope, but that raises another question. How do you get from this kind, the worldly kind of hope, into the biblical kind of hope? And I think that it all comes down to one tiny little two-word preposition, the word in. Go back with me to what David says to his soul in verse five. Put your hope in God. And that word in makes all the difference. You see, again, when we think of people who talk about the word hope, usually what they'll say is something along the lines of, I'm hoping for blank to happen. I'm hoping for a new job. I'm hoping for this pandemic to end. I'm hoping for normal to return. I'm hoping for a date. I'm hoping for whatever. You can fill in the blank in a million different ways. But for is dangerous and here's why. Spouses disappoint. Friendships falter. Finances crumble. Hoping for is a dangerous place to live. For is vague. For is uncertain. For is a shot in the dark. Because when you put your hope for something, 
when you're hoping for something, you're putting your hope in that thing, whatever it is. Now on the, the other side of the coin, when you put your hope in God, you're putting your hope in someone who is ever present and always faithful and always true and always good. When you put your hope in God, you are putting your hope in someone who is all knowing and all powerful and all loving. To put your hope in God is to put your hope in, in something that is steadfast and immovable. Do you see the difference? When you look out at the world today and you're looking for something to put your hope in, you're not gonna find much. You won't find reasons for hope in your 401k or in the economy or in the things that are going on with your job probably. But when your hope is in God, there's always a good reason to hope because why? He's the God of all hope, amen. Let's take this a step further. In the first century, the apostle Peter was writing a letter to a group of Christians who were suffering immensely, tremendously. They were experiencing hardship at the hands of a hostile Roman government. And so he was looking for a way to encourage and inspire them. And part of what he said to them was this, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth, that's new life, resurrected life, into a living hope. Everybody at home say living hope. Thank you, Sean. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I love how Peter says that we have a living hope. And the reason that's true, the reason we can celebrate our living hope is because we have a living savior. Our hope is not in some dead religious system or dead philosophy or deceased guru. Our hope is centered in a living Christ and his name is Jesus. And this is one of those things that makes Christianity so unique. If you think about it, many of the most amazing structures and architectural structures in the world today were built a long time ago as graves to house the remains of the rich and powerful. I mean, the pyramids in Giza would be an example of that and the Taj Mahal in India would be another example of that. And, and you can go to the Green Dome in Saudi Arabia where Muhammad is buried and you can go to the Temple of the Tooth in Sri Lanka where the Buddha is buried and you can go to the, the burial place of Confucius in the Shandong province of China. The point is you can visit all the tombs of these various religious leaders, the most powerful and wealthy people who have ever lived. But there's another tomb, the most famous one of all. It's the garden tomb. It's located on the outskirts of the old city in Jerusalem there in Israel. And I've been there. And, and were you to go to that tomb today and walk inside, you know what you would see? An empty grave because he ain't there. In fact, inscribed on the inside of that tomb, you will find these words. They're the same words that the angel said to the women who came looking for Jesus among the dead. He said, he is not here, 
for he is risen. And that is the living hope that we celebrate today. It's the hope that Jesus defeated death, that hell couldn't win, that death couldn't stop him, that the grave couldn't keep him, the tomb is empty. And what this does is it gives us confidence as we hold on to all the other promises of Jesus. And what were those promises? Well, for one thing, he said, he would never leave us nor forsake us. He also said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And in addition to that, he said, I'm going to come back and get you. And that's just a few of the promises that God has given us. And this is what it means to have a living hope. And what all of this does is it buoys us in the midst of hardship and storms. Let me bring up another verse. The author of Hebrews wrote, we have this hope, the living hope that Peter talked about, the hope of the resurrection. We have this hope as an anchor for our souls. That's Hebrews 6, 19. Now, if you think about an anchor, it serves essentially one function. You can't do a lot with an anchor, but what it does do is essential. It keeps the ship stable in the midst of a storm. Just as an example of this, I was reading about this, this new aircraft carrier that is part of the American fleet. I think it's the USS Gerald R. Ford. The ship is absolutely massive. It stretches over a thousand feet in length. It services a crew of over 5,500 sailors. It carries on top of it 75 aircraft and it weighs over 100,000 tons. It's a big ship and it necessitates a big anchor, which is exactly what it has. In fact, the anchor for this massive ship weighs more than 30,000 pounds. It has a chain attached to it that is 1,440 feet long and each link in that chain is 136 pounds. And what that massive anchor does is it ensures that no matter what is happening on the surface of the ocean, the ship will remain immovable and safe. Now the question, do you have an anchor for your souls? Isn't that what we need? We need an anchor for our souls because our emotions are like a windswept sea. They are tossed to and fro, they're up and down. We find ourselves on the crest of a high and in the trough of a low from moment to moment, depending on what's happening around us. That's why we need something sure so that when the storms hit, our hope remains steadfast. And that's what Jesus is. Jesus is our anchor. Of course, one notable function of an anchor is it's doing its most important work where you can't see it. But just because you can't see the anchor doesn't mean it's not working properly. In fact, when you can't see it is when you need it the most. And I think there's an analogy there for us. Oftentimes I've found it's in those seasons of my life when I can't see God clearly. That's when he's doing his most important work in the inner part of my soul, keeping me steady. With that as a foundation and understanding of what it means to put our hope in God, let's, let's go back to Psalm 42 and see how that played out in David's life. He says, put your hope in God's soul for I will yet praise him. And the thing to note here is the moment that David decided to put his hope in God. It had an immediate and tremendous impact on his emotional state. The very next sentence is, I will yet praise him. He didn't say, 
I should praise him. I'm hoping that I feel like praising him soon. Or I ought to praise him. No, no, no. He says, I will praise him. That is a moment where he engages his will and decides that I am going to do this regardless of how I feel. The point, we need to follow his lead. Don't wait until you feel like it. Engage your will right now and decide to praise the Lord right now. But wait, some of you are protesting. If I'm not really into it and I'm not feeling it and the music isn't hitting me just right, then wouldn't that be inauthentic for me to praise the Lord? No, it wouldn't. You know what it would be? It would be what the Bible describes as a sacrifice of praise, offering to God the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. Because the truth of the matter is, he's worthy of our praise, regardless of whether or not we feel like praising him. Besides that, when we choose to engage our wills and decide to enter in and press through our feelings and worship God in spite of how we feel, oftentimes that changes our hearts and how we feel. It's, it's a sacrifice of praise and it's powerful. It'll shift the atmosphere around you. And to prove that, look with me at verse, verses seven and eight. We'll see how this plays out in David's life. He says, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, even a prayer to the God of my life. Notice the shift in David's mood. He no longer sounds depressed at this point. He's jubilant. He's, he's, he's downright exuberant. He's triumphant. And the interesting thing about that is none of his circumstances have changed. The waves are still crashing over him. And I know we like to talk about deep calling unto deep in songs and, and waterfalls a lot, but I think David's talking about, man, I'm getting set for a two-wave hold down here. God, you're still pummeling me. His family is still in shambles. His kingdom is still in jeopardy. His son is still coming against him and his circumstances haven't changed. But his mindset had, and that proved to be the difference maker. He invites God into his circumstances and what does the Lord do? The Lord immediately then begins to change his heart and his life. In fact, the Lord even awakens him in the middle of the night and gives him a new song, a song in the night. I, I, I've, I've heard this phrase before. I've thought a lot about it. In fact, I woke up about 5.30 this morning with a song in the night from the Lord. I couldn't sleep and it was just so beautiful. It was just a moment where, quite honestly, I was trying to pray so I would fall back asleep. And then the Lord just put this little melody in my head and I began to sing it. And, and it's what the Lord does. And, and some of you are wondering, what is this song in the night? Well, I'll tell you. A song in the night is a sweet song that the Lord gives during a difficult season of life. Songs in the night are special, they're unique, they're sweet, they're intimate, and get this, they're powerful too. Have you ever read anything about nightingale birds? Probably not. That's the kind of thing that preachers do for you. So nightingales are unique among the bird family, right? Because you wake up on most mornings, you step outside and you're likely to hear songbirds singing beautifully. I did it this morning with my coffee and, and you'll hear all kinds of birds singing throughout the day. But you've probably noticed that once the sun sets and night falls, that the birds go quiet. Most birds don't sing at night. However, there is one exception 
the nightingale. It sings primarily at night and it has this proclivity to sing at night. And what's more, nightingales are said to have one of the most beautiful songs of any bird in the bird kingdom. And I think, again, there's an analogy there for us. See, anybody can sing when the sun is shining. But when you see someone continuing to sing their song of faith, when the world around them has gone dark, it leaves a mark and it makes an impression. And those night songs often produce the sweetest notes in our lives. But those songs aren't just sweet, they're also powerful. Just ask Paul and Silas. Acts chapter 16 tells the story of how these two guys were traveling throughout the ancient world in an attempt to bring the gospel with them to new areas and un 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 unknown lands and all the rest. And they were arrested for that and thrown in prison. And Acts 16.25 says this, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. Then suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. Notice the progression. Midnight falls, the darkest part of the night, but these two nightingales couldn't be kept quiet. And instead of pouting or complaining about their circumstances or trials, they lifted up their voices in praise and prayer to God. And what happened? They were set free. The earth beneath them shook. The chains on them fell. And not just their chains, but the chains of all the prisoners in that prison. Listen up, church. Is your heart heavy? Is your soul downcast? Then put your hope in God and praise him with your heart. And if you'll do that, your depression will lift and your chains will fall. Now, it'd be wonderful if I could end the psalm there. But the psalm doesn't end in verse eight with David singing in the night and praying to the Lord. Right after this exceptional high, David is plunged back down into the depths of depression in verses nine and 10. He talks again about his enemies oppressing him, his bones suffering him, and his foes taunting him, saying, where is your God? Where did he go wrong? And the truth is, there's a valuable lesson even in that. You see, it's not going to be enough to tell your soul just one time to put your hope in God. Sometimes the darkness and depression refuse to lift. And sometimes after they've lifted, they return. So what should you do? You preach to your soul again. You tell yourself, put your hope in God. You decide to worship him all over again. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. And then you do it again as many times as it, take. it takes. And that's how you sustain hope in the midst of hard times. God never promised his kids a life free from hardship. What he did promise them was his abiding presence. And it may take a while, but I promise you, eventually the message is gonna stick, the fog is going to lift, and, and the pain will end. God's gonna show up. That's how this thing works. In fact, one person aptly pointed out that that's perhaps what the letters of hope stand, stand for. Hope stands for hang on, pain ends. 
And I say amen to that. We, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we have a living hope. His name is Jesus. So put your hope in him. He's an ever-present help in times of trial and trouble. That, friends, is how we sustain hope in the midst of hardship. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.